Welcome to Quest, where we believe a great faith, great church experience, and great life is grounded in authentic relationship with God and living life with friends. Join us today in changing our world one friendship at a time. If you would like more information about connecting at Quest, stay tuned after the message. Good morning. Great to see you. Great to be with you online as well. Um, so this last week, um, I've known this for a while, but it really struck me again. I'm officially old. I've got a birthday coming up, but that's not what struck me. Uh, awareness became more apparent this last week again when I was listening to some kids in college talk about how hard it was to do a paper because the internet was spotty. So you know you're acting old when you say to yourself or say to other people, back in my day, see, back in my day, I didn't have the internet. I went through undergrad using something called a typewriter we had to actually go to the library and pick up things that actually were full of paper that had typewriter type on them called a book to research. When we wanted to search for something, we just couldn't hit command F and find exactly what we wanted to do. We had to learn how to speed read to find the stuff or use the table of contents. I know every generation tells the previous generation how much easier they had it than we did. It's like we're trying to convince, I think, sometimes people to go back to the way it was better, you know, back in the day, in the good old days. And, and maybe that's true, but I, I, I'm glad the Internet's around. I don't know about you. The tendency is, though, I think for us to look back at the good old days, and I think, frankly, it often causes problems for us to, as, we, as we venture into new seasons in life. And I think we're hopefully stepping into a new season now in this post-COVID new kind of normal. So the, that's the reason we've titled this series, The Fractured Church. We've been preparing this series for well over a month with the topics known for over a month. And, and we're just jumping into it today. The, the strong, ominous title, let me just put one thing to the side. It's not communicating that things are falling apart at Quest because they're not. However... We are wanting to address the impact of how the post-COVID 2020 socio-political issues have changed all of us, our world, and the church as a whole. We as the church are facing a whole new array of challenges and thereby choices we need to think through as to how to navigate those challenges. For many, 2020 was just about getting through. We see in, our, in some businesses, especially restaurants, that surviving is considered the new success. If you're still open, you're doing well. And there's le legitimacy to that idea, right? Many churches are saying the same thing. We made it through. I want to do more than that. Because we want to seize the opportunities of the moment that we're in for the gospel and not live in a survival mode. And it's not going to be easy. A recent Gallup poll said that in the U.S. about one-third of regular churchgoers have left the church for good in 2020 because of the shutdowns and distancing. Think about that. That's concerning. For the first time in American history, less than 50% 50, 50 of the population is tied to a church, a synagogue, or a mosque. That's a huge drop of 20 points in 20 years. We're living in a new normal. In America, politics have become more like a pseudo religion. People often know more about their political platforms and ideologies than they know about Christian theologies and doctrines, resulting in a stronger emphasis being on where one stands politically 
and rather than seeing how first and foremost our identity is found as a follower of Jesus. You've seen this. You've watched friends walk away from their church and their faith largely due to political divisiveness and relationships. We've also seen an increase in difference in the church. In comparison to other countries who have less people going to church, the U.S. has typically been known as a place of having lots of cultural Christians, meaning people go to church, but their lives and beliefs don't actually match what the Bible and Christianity talks about and teaches. It's just a cultural thing we do. So the purpose of this series is not to focus on the current condition and think, woe is us. Rather, the purpose is to be aware of the current state we're in and to re-envision what God would like for us as the church to look like and as followers of Jesus to look like in this season. Because this is such a powerful opportunity. How can we come back as a church even better? How do we seize the opportunities this last year has put in front of us? So let's re-envision, let's dream How can we take the fractured pieces of church and let God re-envision, maybe even at some places, redesign what he wants the church to look like now? Before we go further, let's just pause and pray. Would you pray with me? Spirit of God, we welcome you and we welcome your presence here. Lord, I pray that you'd help me, help everyone here, help everyone sitting on the couch at home listening or in their car listening. Lord, would you help us all be sensitive and open to what your Spirit wants to say to us this morning. Come, Holy Spirit, and speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. See, the challenge of the church has caused increasing fractures that we want to look at today. And the one we want to look at today in particular is culture's focus on individualism. It is our culture's emphatic belief that faith and morality are a personal, private matter. Robert Putnam, a sociologist famous for writing the book Bowling Alone a number of years ago, highlights research that has shown how individualism has fractured culture over the past 50 years. His most recent research has shown that the average American in just a span of a couple years has gone from having 3.2 friends to 1.8 friends, meaning friendships have been cut nearly in half in the last few years for most Americans. Other stats show that 40% of Americans have one to zero people who they could call a confidant, someone that they can process life and pain with at a real level. The former U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy wrote in 2017, during my years caring for patients, the most common pathology I saw was not heart disease or diabetes, it was loneliness. According to a recent study in 2018, so remember this is before COVID, 46% of Americans report sometimes or always feeling alone or left out. Only 53% say they have meaningful in-person social interactions on a daily basis. And while we may think loneliness is more prominent among seniors, which 45% of seniors do say that they experience loneliness, the study noted that it was actually Gen Z, adults 18 to 22, who are the loneliest generation alive today. And I can imagine it's only worse since covid 
Individualism is a major challenge for the church because the church, by definition, means we're a family. Whereas individualistic culture looks at relationships as being more transactional. In other words, what can you do for me? I'll stay in this relationship as long as it's a beneficial transaction for me. See, individualism encourages narcissism, which is a growing problem in our culture. It's easy for all of us to feel the pull to make your life all about you, thinking my decisions only affect me. I mean, I feel the pull of that. It's easy to go along with culture and become obsessed about yourself and your own happiness and what you want. Yet that's not biblical. And even on a practical basis, we know close, deep, intimate friendships, relationships happen only in the safety of commitment. We are created for and we ache for deep-rooted, committed relationships in our lives. Many have not even found that in their own families. See, God designed the church to be a place where we can find and grow in healthy relationships. I mean, sure, we all know people have issues. All of us in here have issues, and we're going to hurt each other from time to time. But God designed the church to be different. It designed it to be a place where, by committed relationship, we work through those differences and that pain into healthier relationships. So how do we as a church with this strong gravitational pull of our culture toward individualism, create a culture where we become more like brothers and sisters in a family. See, in order to re-envision church, let's today revisit some key aspects of of the early church that made it so outrageously successful. I mean, the whole book of Acts is basically the story of the very first followers of Jesus. And it begins with seeing how Jesus appeared for 50 days after his resurrection to his followers, finally ascending into heaven. And Jesus told them to stay in Jerusalem where it says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And we're carrying that very same mission to this very day as followers of Jesus. So the disciples stayed in Jerusalem. Acts 2 tells us they were in an upstairs room praying and the Holy Spirit fell upon them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And then Peter, one of the apostles, stepped outside, filled by the Holy Spirit. He preaches the very first sermon ever recorded in the Christian church to thousands of people there for a big festival in Jerusalem. It was a sermon that simply said Jesus was God in the flesh, the long-awaited Messiah. He was not just the king of the Jews. He was the king of kings. That Jesus lived a sinless and perfect life. He died on the cross for our sins. And three days later, he rose from the dead. And many of the people there were witness to that rising from the dead. So now he was on anyone who calls on the name of the Lord by faith in Jesus and repents of their sins will be forgiven of their sins and they will be saved and receive the same Holy Spirit. And that simple message led to the birth and the acts of the first church. Let's continue reading in Acts 2. It says, So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And that was just the first day. More kept being added to them. It goes on and says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and, to, and, and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad 
and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. That's amazing, isn't it? And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So they shared their homes, their meals together. They were experiencing miracles and wonders were happening. I mean, are those not the results we long for as a church? Yet maybe we don't see those kinds of results because we're not like the followers of Jesus in the Acts 2 church. And maybe the truth is we'll never see what the early church saw unless we become who the early church was. From that first sermon through the first 300 years, the Christian church grew to displace the Greco-Roman Empire and its culture. One of the largest, most powerful empires in history. If the early church can do that, it is not impossible to believe that we, his church, can see America change, can see Canada, Europe, Russia, China, the world change. Christianity is that powerful. But that begs the question, what's the difference between then and now? And I think we see the main difference in these three words in the context of that passage. They devoted themselves. Now, in the Bible, the word devote means to persevere, to constantly be diligent, to give of oneself continually. And that's the reason why some of the translations take this passage and say they gave themselves away to learning, to fellowship, to each other, and to prayer. In other words, what made the early church so unusual was this principle of radical unselfishness that had never been seen like this before. And it pervaded every aspect of what the church did. So, uh, Wendy this last week was sharing with me about how she had a conversation with one of her Muslim friends about Ramadan. Since that started this last week, she was talking about that with her. And her friend shared the purpose for Ramadan is about becoming a better person for 30 days. You don't eat or drink between sunup and sundown. You can party like crazy after that, but you don't do it between sunup and sundown. You choose to not do any vice like smoking at all during that day and because you're waiting to eat until after 9 o'clock at night and then you have to get up for 4.30 in prayer. She said, it is an exhausting month. This is a hardcore 30 days of self-denial. Wendy and her were comparing how the practice of Lent has some similarities and some differences, but Wendy was really challenged by her friend's desire to deny herself thinking We as Christians think Lent and giving up maybe one thing in Lent is hard. And it made me reflect on the early church and how their spiritual transformation, their discipleship, and not just, it was not just about learning and moral purity, but also about giving of yourself a radical, generous selflessness. For example, It says all believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. And they radically, sacrificially gave of themselves for others. They gave up their time, their talents, their treasures, and they lived that way for everyone, not just for those within the church. They lived their lives with open hands. It was almost like they took Jesus seriously when he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You'll give up your own way. See, the life of following Christ is a life of self-denial. There's no escaping this point in Scripture. I don't know what this fully looks like in our modern-day world, 
I can't determine that for you. All I know is the generous life of self-giving, self-denial from these early Christians started with opening up their homes to share meals with people. And it went all the way to the highest level of sacrifice of sharing everything they had. What we've just noticed also wasn't just a one-time thing. This was the characteristic of the other church. We see it in Acts 4. We see it even later. These are months, maybe years later. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that they belonged to them was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what they had sold and they laid it to the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. They felt that what they owned was not their own but actually belonged to God and they were simply stewards. So they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. God's great blessing was upon them all. I just wonder if God's blessing was on them because they had their stuff in their hands open to God, saying, God, you can do whatever you want with whatever I am and have at any time. And there was no needy person among them. Just think about that. Because those who owned a land and houses would sell and bring it to the apostles' feet and give it to those in need. And what was the result of that? The church was seeing people put their faith in Jesus every single day. And that selflessness was one of the most striking things in the Roman culture. In fact, about less than 100 years after this, Lucian of Samosoto, one of the early Greek philosophers and an opponent of Christianity, wrote that one of the reasons people were offended by Christianity was because their founder, Jesus, taught his followers to be like brothers to one another and to see their own possessions as common property. Understand, this is not like communism, as some people try to portray it. They didn't give all their assets into a commonwealth and then get a salary from the central committee. That didn't happen. It was actually more like capitalism that wasn't infected by greed or self-centeredness. They willingly, generously gave as they saw need. There's a great early church historian called Kenneth Letteret who says this. He says, Why among all the many cults and philosophies which competed in the Greco-Roman world and in spite of more severe opposition, did Christianity outstrip them all? It's a great question, isn't it? He goes on to say, for this reason. More than any of its competition, it attracted all races and classes. Christianity gloried in its appeal to the Jew, the Gentile, Greek, and barbarian. Christianity drew the lowly and uneducated multitude, yet Christianity also developed a philosophy which commanded the respect of many of the learned. He goes on and says, Christianity too was for both sexes, where at least two of the main rivals were primarily for men. The church welcomed both rich and poor, and he concludes saying this, no other religion took in so many groups and strata of society. See, the Christian ideals of loving and generous community were radical at the time, and they still are today, such as you should forgive and love your enemies instead of taking revenge. This came from Christianity first. No other religion produced this. 
And then another one, care for the poor. I mean, other religions talk about care for the poor, but this is like care for the poor on steroids. The intensity that came from Christianity that led eventually over the course of history to creating hospitals and orphanages and other relief for the poor that has never been seen before. And another one, every human being, no matter their race or class, no matter how weak or physically disabled or talented or strong, have the same value and rights. Historians have shown that that came out of Christianity. So why did Christianity produce these ideals? It's because they modeled it after Jesus. Jesus himself said, Father, you sent me into this world to give myself away for their sake. And that's what he did. He left all of his greatness and all of his power to become of no reputation, despised and rejected, so that you and I could have a name with God for all of eternity. He was rejected by everyone so that we could be loved by God and live in love with God and others forever. He took the punishment that we deserve for our selfishness. When Christians came to understand what Jesus did, and no other religion or philosophy had God give himself away in any kind of similar way, this led to understanding that we too should not hold on to power or wealth or glory, but we should give ourselves away for others in love. That's radical, self-sacrificial Christianity. You lay your glory down. You get involved with the poor. Nothing is beneath you. You become unselfish with your things. It's all God's to use however he wants. The church was known as being incredibly generous and selfless. When Christians do this, amazing things happen. I mean, a life devoted to God and others in rich, committed, powerful community stands out in a world that is devoted to self. The early church was devoted to the teaching of God. We're going to actually talk a little bit more about that next week and talk about it in the context of how we deal with our culture's moral relativism. But it is also devoted to each other and to prayer. Today our purpose is to zero in and revision what it means to be devoted to one another. With all the constraints related to safety and COVID, how do we practice this essential ingredient of the early church's success about gathering with one another in deeply committed love and community? Without it, you personally and we as a church will never see the results the early church saw. See, the real mission of the church is a relationship. That's the reason we say relationships are the mission. It defines our commitment to do whatever it takes to help lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus. That's love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, the first great commandment. And then relationship with one another, the second great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. We can't have one without the other. We want deep friendships that help us carry the weight of life. And we have to be much more than friendly. I mean, we can go to Walmart for friendly. Friendly usually means we talk about the weather or catch up on sports. That's hardly what Jesus had in mind when he told us to love one another. But to have healthier relationships, we're going to bump up the issues against the issue of trust on a regular basis, aren't we? We've got some work to do in our lives to strengthen trust. See, trust is affected by our experiences and What we see actually in the studies is that the younger generation are struggling with trust more than those who are older. Maybe because all they've ever seen is so much abuse, the breakdown of family, scandal, corruption, political divisiveness that never seems to get anything done. 
The studies show that only about 13% of millennials and Gen Zs think that most people are trustworthy. Baby boomers think, 50 to 70% of them think that most people are trustworthy. That's a huge difference, isn't it? How do we as a church build trust? We do it one relationship at a time. One conversation, one meal, one long walk at a time. Today, some of us may be feeling disconnected from church. Please don't give up. I mean, it's a reality that Jesus during his lifetime was super critical at times of the church. But he never said you could successfully live life without the church. God created us to live in relationship, in community with one another. God established and values the church. We will not become the person. You will not become the person you were created to be without the church. We can have other communities at work and around hobbies, and yet those don't have the potential for the depth and the change that Jesus designed for the church to be. All of this reminds me, actually, of the power of the first word of the Lord's Prayer. Remember what it is? Our. Our Our Father. Not my Father, but our Father. See, Jesus, even in teaching us to pray, immediately goes to this place that we are a connected people. We are part of the family of God. We are not isolated, not intended to live isolated or alone. We are in a web of relationships as brothers and sisters in Christ, and our whole spiritual experience takes place in this family of God. Our reminds us that we are part of something much bigger than ourselves. We live out our relationship with God through our relationship with people and specifically with the church. So the big question of the day is how seriously do we take this expectation from God to be the church? Do we realize that we don't live in isolation? Do we realize that what we do affects not only ourselves but others? See, in Christian theology, there is no such thing as a personal, private decision that only affects me. My choices speak of my faith and my morality to those around me. My choices as a follower of Jesus represent Jesus to the world, to my friends and neighbors. If I'm harboring unforgiveness, it makes me less effective as an employee, a parent, as a friend, and, and I misrepresent Jesus in the church. If I choose to do something others will see as sinful, it reflects on Jesus and the church, and our choices affect one another. As followers of Jesus, our actions represent him and represent the church to the world. Therefore, Jesus commands us to push back on our culture's push for individualism, consumerism, and just doing stuff because it feels right to me and I like it. It makes me happy. We reject the idea that our faith is personal and private. And we own that we are part of Christ's body, the church, and that we represent Jesus every moment of our lives and the church. See, the power of gathering and being as church is so important for our souls. 
I mean, one thing I love, just a real simple thing, is I love when we're together in our congregations worshiping. And sometimes I just look around because it's nice because sometimes you can easily get to this place where you think, man, I'm crazy for believing what I do about God. And, and when you see others believing like you and worshiping, it's just encouraging. And it builds you up and empowers you to walk more confidently. I think that one of the things that is dying and hopefully not coming back in the church since COVID is consumer-oriented Christianity. My hope is that it is being replaced by a more focused and authentic Christianity that does faith with one another, that lives in rich, deeply committed community. Living lives that are not compartmentalized, but seeing how God is Lord over all that we are, all that we do, all that we say from how we talk with our kids to how we do our finances to what we do with our sex lives, everything. And as we walk this out, we want to encourage you to look at three areas. Our first action step for today is, is about gathering as a corporate body on Sundays. Now, I recognize that for some of you, it's still not safe for you to come in person. Please take care of yourselves. Do not feel pressure or guilt from us. But I think a question all of us need to be asking ourselves is, am I watching from home for safety reasons or because it's just more convenient? As we see in the early church, gathering was a crucial aspect of the church for its own well-being. And the mission of God went forward most profoundly because of the depth of love and commitment people saw in the community of faith. Because of the radical generosity people saw in the community of faith, they flocked to Jesus. Our quality of friendships and commitment to each other, the church, is possibly the greatest testimony of Jesus in the world around us. Now, if you stay online, it's more difficult to feel part of the family. Some, some questions for you if you're, if you're watching online. How can you engage more fully while online? And how are you still reaching out, even if only by phone or Zoom, to give and receive love and keep those relationships going and healthy? And another question, how can we help you as a church cultivate more meaningful relationships for you as well? So second action for all of us, join a small group. Some of you might say, well, I listen to podcasts I'm growing on my own. To that I'd say, watching a podcast without a connection with another person isn't going to develop the strength you long for over the long haul. Content alone just doesn't cut it. Even if you say you're growing spiritually on your own, to that I would say, well, if you're doing well, then there is a group of people who need you to give what God is giving you to them. Because God has called you to that. If we at Quest don't have the small groups that fit your needs and desires, we'd love for any of you to start a new small group. We'll help you. We'll train you. We'll support you. We'll encourage you with resources. We'd love to have a variety of groups, from study groups to interest-oriented groups around hobbies or fun activities, some that also include some learning and prayer together. And if you're listening and you say, I don't, I don't even believe in God, then we have the perfect group for you. It's called the Alpha Course. And I want to encourage you to take your pursuit of God to the next level and be really intentional and sign up for that. It'll be coming out in the fall again. And that's for exploring what all this Christian stuff is about. And the third action step that we can take, is it's about relationships. Are you cultivating friendships that you can share openly with? 
Do you have a few people in your life that you can share your strengths and weaknesses with? People you can confess your sins to and they can help encourage you and hold you accountable when you mess up. Again, you can find those friendships, those kinds of friendships in small groups as well. What this is all about today, we want you to dream. And we want you to take some time to re-envision. It's not going to be going forward about getting back to what we once had. But how do we come back even better? What are we going to learn from the opportunities that this, even this difficult time has posed to us? See, I have a ton of hope for the future of the church in the U.S. Why? Because even though church numbers are shrinking in the U.S., the church is exploding all around the world. It's growing the fastest in Iran, even though it's illegal to gather. In fact, some people trying to study it say the church in Iran is the fastest growing church growth movement possibly in the history of the world. Even more than the house church movement in China. And some say about China that China, the growth is so fast that it very well likely will be a Christian nation in the next 20 years with how fast the church is growing there. Yeah. See, our prayer and our focus is how do we join with God in re-envisioning what He wants the church to look like here and now. This could be the American church's finest moment. This could very well be Quest's finest moment, a moment where we see the rebirth of a church that is authentically Christian and not a cultural knockoff of the real thing. Would you stand with me as we pray? And Holy Spirit, I just, I just say with my voice and hopefully the voice of everyone joining me, Lord, would you come and make us the church you've called us to be? Would we be the body of Christ, your representatives that you've called us to be? Would we get this love that you've called us to live out? Even across differences where we learn to give grace and love generously across differences in such radical ways that the world goes, I can't believe somebody loves like that. Lord, would you lead us to receive your love that's like that toward us in such a powerful way to be filled by your spirit and that we as a local church here and that we as the American church would grasp who you've really called us to be so that we too could see our nation and our world radically transformed. Because Lord, your spirit and your goodness and your grace is that powerful to do that. So Lord, lead us to be your church. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you encountered the love of Jesus in this message. If you'd like to be a part of the ministry God is doing through Quest, whether in person or online, go to questvineyard.org for more information. If you want to worship God by supporting Quest financially, go to questvineyard.org give. May God bless you this week as you partner with God to change the world one friendship at a time.